And we've created two categories, the PAWS and the AWS. The P-A-W-S means a prodigious accumulator of wealth. And the U-A-W is an under accumulator of wealth. And here's how it works. If you tell us what your age is and what your income is, 10% of that value of age times income should be your net worth. And if you're four times that average, then you're a prodigious accumulator. If you're one quarter that average, you're an under accumulator. This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. Hey, everybody. I had the opportunity to sit down with the best-selling author of The Millionaire Next Door, Dr. Bill Danko. And if you're into money, if you're into, if you're into being frugal or w- whether you're into like creating wealth, there's a very, very good chance that you've read um, the book Millionaire Next Door, have been impacted by the work. Um, we, we did a back-of-the-neck-in calculation and probably over – Five million people have been impacted directly from the work that that Dr. Uh, Bill Danko has done. And I remember for myself, it was one of the first books that I read. And it was one of the reasons why I started working at the bank and got so fired up about um, this idea of wealth. And so I took I took six pages of notes for this interview. I reread The Millionaire Next Door. I read uh, Bill's newest book, Richer Than a Millionaire. And this is a longer interview. Um, Bill actually doesn't do a ton of interviews, and so I was so grateful that he said yes uh, to being on uh, my my show. And I just we talked about everything. I talked a lot about his millionaire next door, the, the concepts, um, some some questions I had. I even asked him about the difference between scarcity versus abundance because that's probably the thing that I'm like the, probably the thing that I quote unquote on the surface disagree the most with. But you'll see in this interview that. Um, Bill's very down to earth. He believes that you are your greatest asset. He believes in a purpose. He believes in intentional living. And he has uh, data to back that up through his work. And it was just a great conversation. So without further ado, enjoy this conversation. If um, if you're not driving, don't do this if you're driving, but if you're not driving, I would really encourage you to take notes, glean some things. Again, through dialogue, um, it, I can't say that the whole interview is going to be like just um, dropping nuggets, but I'm telling you, there were about 20 some concepts that were dropped throughout this interview that are extremely profound. And I'm asking you to take a step back, maybe listen to this twice, share this with someone that they need to hear this and, um, and really gain what it, what it means to be richer than a millionaire. Dr. Danko, welcome to the show. Thank you. And now I told you this when we first got on, I think it's, it's weird. I get really excited when I get to meet people that had had such a huge impact in not just the world, but in my life. I know that you've sold more than 4 million copies of The Millionaire Next Door. And we kind of did a back of the napkin calculation. 4 million copies equals a lot more than 4 million people reading. Because I know I consumed it on a library CD, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, But I want you to know that 15-year-old Caleb driving my dad's old prism driving, driving to, I don't even know where I was going. And I, and I listened to your unabridged millionaire next door CDs. Uh And I, I have to say that book, along with the richest man in Babylon, along with thinking girl rich, ironically, which I trust me, I read your, your book recommendation. Yes. Uh Those books were huge 
for me to have a passion for this industry. And I, it's hard for me to point back to one book, but but those are the reasons why I had so much interest, which led me to working at a bank, which led me to being part of Better Wealth. Uh-huh. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you for writing a book that not just impacted me, but 400 or 4 million plus people. <laughs> and my hope is I would love to get a little of your story. You don't actually have a ton of recent interviews, so it's an honor having you on here. I would love to get a little of your backstory. I want to go a little over a millionaire next door, but what I really want to focus on is your new book that has come out. And I'm just really excited about it. I, I read it recently. I tore it up. And uh, I just think this is going to be an amazing conversation. So thank you for being on. Right. Well, thank you. I, uh, I wholeheartedly agree. I'm because I'm ready to promote it too. <laughs> I love it. So do me a Uh-oh. favor. No, if, you're not gonna listen, if you're not going to listen to the whole interview, shame on you, but go to richerthanamillionaire.com, get a book. Um, and it's the least that you can do. So with, with that, um, what, can you give me a little bit of your backstory? Like none of this stuff happens overnight. Fun fact, you published Millionaire Next Door 1996. Yes. I was born in 96. There you go. <laughs> 24 years ago. So, so with that, that, that ages you slightly. Um, it does. So why, why this? What, what's a little bit about your backstory? And, and yeah, I, I always love um, hearing how people decided to make the decisions that they decided. And, and, and it's so, yeah, with that, what's your backstory? Okay. Um, well, I grew, grew up in a pretty modest household. Uh, my dad died when I was five years old. He was 38 years old. Um, so we didn't have a lot of money, but my mother had love in the household and raised the children. And so when it came time to thinking about college, I uh, went to a state school, the State University of New York at Albany. And that's where I met Professor Stanley in 1973, when I was a junior in his consumer behavior course. Um, I got an A in the course. He liked my attitude and we worked well together, but he encouraged me to um, stay on and get an MBA under his direction, which I did. And it, it was absolutely wonderful. Um, we, we worked together then in 1976, he left to go to a different school. And he said, you know, Danko, what you really need is to go get a PhD. <laughs> I was easily influenced, right? <laughs> so I got my PhD at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute or RPI or Rensselaer. It's, uh, it, it has a number of names uh, that we can go by um, in the Lally School of Management. Well, after getting my degree, I came back to the faculty at the university at Albany and uh, was a professor for 31 years. Then I decided these students were getting younger and younger. I decided it was time to uh, go on and do other things in my life, okay? (laughs) But during that time, it it was absolutely wonderful. From 1973 to 1993, Tom Stanley and I did a number of consulting and academic projects together. And it was in 1993 when he called me up and said, Bill, do you still have the old data sets that we uh, had used for consulting and other studies? And I said, I did. And he says, well, let's reanalyze them and come up with an overarching uh, survey for a concept called Big Hat No Cattle. (laughs) And it was about the people who have the illusion of money. They look good. 
but they really have no substance. Okay, so we did the survey research, got a book contract um, in 1996, the book was launched and 4 million copies later, I can say it was a, well, a rich experience. <laughs> uh, it, it was very good, very, very good. But 1996 was also a very pivotal year in my life. Uh, my brother, Tony, who the book is, the new book is dedicated to, Anthony J. Danko, um, was a quadriplegic. And my mother suffered a stroke and could no longer take care of him. And fortunately, I had royalties coming in. I bought him a house, all wheelchair accessible. And my wife and I became the primary caregiver givers uh, to my brother, Tony, and um, kept them out of a nursing home, helped them age with dignity. That was, that was really the motivation. But during that time, and, and we could talk about the millionaire next door a little bit too, you know, and some of the key principles. Um, one of my colleagues, Richard Van Ness, who lives near me in upstate New York, um, we would get together, socialize, and talk about uh, various concepts. And we're thinking about what kind of legacy do we want to leave our children and our grandchildren? I have five grandchildren, three adult children. It's, uh, I've been blessed. There's, there's no question. But having the ability and the responsibility of dealing with a, a quadriplegic who couldn't even scratch his nose, um, you have to feed them, bathe them, dress them, and everything else. And it's, you know, a, it's a free for all trying to hire healthcare aides. So every, anyway, every Friday, Saturday and Sunday, uh, nearly every Friday, Saturday and Sunday, I was his personal aide. And uh, so we really got to talk like brothers talk, but in a very, I guess, serious and sober way. And uh, said, boy, here I am a New York Times bestseller. And there he is, a guy who has all sorts of issues, well, not issues, but problems uh, with his, uh, but he had also had a lot of faith. And he also talked about that uh, money is highly overrated. And it, and it is especially, you know, you realize what money does not mean when you, when you can't even move saying, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm glad I'm in a safe, warm house. Yeah, I, I, I'm not minimizing that. But at the same time, it gives you a perspective saying, and that's, you know, so Rich Van Ness and I would be talking about these issues about, you know, again, the legacy we wanted to leave our children and grandchildren. And so we reinforced the ideas that were in the millionaire next door in the first part of the book. And in the second part of the book, we talk about what does it mean to be rich and happy? Okay, so that's 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 how I evolved over the years. Yeah, the I have a lot of questions for you, but I think one of the when, when I read to you how you opened up your newest book, a lot of the listeners will realize why I, I so much resonated with you. You pretty much open up. You you open up swinging. I, I like that about you. <laughs> you said it's clear to us that many young people are clueless about their direction. You later say. Many are like ships on a high sea of life without rudders. They have tremendous potential, but no direction. That's right. And, in, you know, and in my 31 years at the university, I probably had over 10,000 students and probably 500 or more with deep 
interactions in office hours. And they would talk about, you know, their parents' divorces and they would talk about their health issues. We'd also talk about the material of marketing research and statistics and uh, marketing management, those kind of issues that I was uh, teaching. But we talk about life. And when I asked the question, and in fact, towards the end of uh, the, the book in uh, Richer Than a Millionaire, I talk about the idea of, um, we hear about follow your dreams. Well, <laughs> I tell these students, follow your dreams, but don't forget to make a living. Yeah, right? okay. <laughs> so you, you, you have to balance that. You know, it's wonderful to be a free spirit, but every responsible parent wants their uh, children to be economically self-sufficient as well. All right, so let's do something productive. And uh, so these are the kind of perspectives that you know, I really appreciated being, I, I wouldn't trade anything. Yeah. I loved it at the university. I loved being in school. I, I, I love now this opportunity to, uh, I'm, I'm up in the Adirondack Mountains right now at, at a lakeside uh, house and um, just absolutely enjoying life. It's all good. It. So when you wrote Millionaire Next Door, 1996, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I can tell you firsthand from doing a self-published book, like every sale of a book is work. And most yeah. most books never, I think the stat is like, don't even sell over a thousand copies. Like it's very, yeah. very small. What happened? Is there anything that you can contribute? Was there, did did like a news organization pick you up? How in the yeah. world did you get that, yeah, that you know, you know what? And I got to hand it to Tom Stanley on this. Uh, one of his neighbors was a business reporter for the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> and it was, uh, I think it was, the book came out in October 96. And I think it was November 96 when I, I have, have it in my files. But a, an article on page B1, second section of the Wall Street Journal by Anita Sharp uh, writing a very positive and laudatory things about uh, a millionaire next door. And once that article hit, all sorts of news organizations then followed and called and said, gee, can we do an interview? And, you know, Radio Australia would call and, you know, radio stations in Ireland would call. I mean, it, it was just really a worldwide phenomena. It's, uh, it, but that, but but I'm convinced it was that first article from the Wall Street Journal that really opened the floodgates. I, I have this concept called leverage impact, and it's essentially what is the one thing that you can do, especially in marketing, that if done changes everything. And that that the reason I thought you had to get picked up by some kind of news article is like that that really is for most people publicity. And you got you got seen, and it resonated. Also, I want to just say your book is super well researched, and just like good to great, that was very much. I very much felt like I was reading a Jim Collins book, mm -hmm. reading yours is very mm -hmm. well researched. And I think there's a reason why you guys are both best-selling authors. Is like, yeah, yeah. I, I remember uh, uh, I was at a conference, and a sociology professor from uh, Duke University was there. He says, you know, this, this is really good, solid sociological research. And I said, well, thank you. And I, I believe it is. Um, it, it really, you know, live among the natives. It's the uh, Jane Goodall approach. You know, how do the natives uh, operate in this environment? It's, yeah. uh, it, it was good. And, you know, it, it, and, that's, and that's really the key with uh, um the millionaire next door, it has something what is called convergent validity. 
where we had, you know, validity meaning truth, right? But we had IRS data, Census Bureau data, uh, paper and pencil uh, questionnaires, focus groups, personal interviews. When you take this constellation of these disparate data sources and you know synthesize it, and it converges, it converges on the uh, the ideas that well that are contained in the book. So, it, anytime you have validity, you have truth, right? Yeah. Yeah. And when you have truth, it's uh, it's easy to sell. Yeah. I love it. One of the, I mean, I would say if I had to. If I had to summarize a millionaire next door, and I don't want to make this short, but oh. essentially it's live below your means. Yeah, I, I think frugality is, is, you know, there's a concept in economics called self-imposed economic scarcity, <laughs> which means self-imposed what's between your ears, okay? We live in a hyper-consumer society, don't we? You watch the advertisements, you, you see the, your friends driving new cars, you see people buying houses that are big. We see athletes living large. You say, my goodness, how do they do that? Well, if you're an athlete making millions of dollars a year, uh, you, you have a certain propensity to consume and, and hopefully you have some good financial advice where you can retire someday when you can no longer play. You know, one of my friends uh, says, well, the NFL stands for not for long. Yeah, no, it's kidding. <laughs> you know, yeah. there, there's, you know, it's a, it's a brutal business, of course. Now, but th this idea of self-imposed economic scarcity means you have to divorce yourself from all that beckoning call from society, from advertisers saying, if you buy this new car, you're going to feel this much better. You know, if you wear this particular piece of jewelry, you're going to be somebody. Well, that's a bunch of baloney. Now, this is coming from a marketing professor. <laughs> I know how it works. And uh, it can be very seductive. We, we were saying... We were saying this before we started recording, how I believe that a lot of people have an identity problem. And the reason why so many people are broke is regardless whether it's wanting to be significant or seen as like, it's probably a lot of different reasons, but people have these behaviors and it's more of a heart issue than it is just a, just a money issue. When you look at where we are now, what, what can you, any stats that jump out to you? Like what is going on? And like, have we gotten worse since you've written The Millionaire Next Door? Or, or like what, what's going on here? Well, you know, prior to the pandemic, uh, I think things were getting worse. We had a lot of hyper-consumption. Uh, if there's any silver lining in the pandemic, maybe it's letting families become families again. Yeah. You know, it's... Um, in, in fact, there's been a number of studies that even homeschooling, you know, the, the, the remote learning is actually not as bad as you think it is. It's um, now there's a problem that kids and I, and I you know, with, again, I have five grandkids that the oldest is being 14. I mean, they ought to be socializing, you know, and, and I really think that's one of the negatives of the pandemic. That's for certain. Um, but they are good students. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It just, 
it's just so interesting to me, like when you did your research, was it was it still the same problems? Like are the, the same problems in 1996? Are they still relevant today? Or like, what are what are the biggest differences? Yeah, I mean, look, you, we see people who uh, they have a lot of money and they think it's going to be a curative to all their problems. I mean, they still have problems even though they have a lot of money. I mean, you talk about what's going on in the heart, the true conversion. You know, we, we have this Greek word called metanoia, uh, which means a true conversion of the heart. I mean, it's a religious term, but it, what it means to have, um, you know, well, a, a true understanding of, I know my place, I, I come to grips with my mortality. Um, I have to ask myself why. In fact, I have a number of friends in law enforcement and I'll, I'll quiz them and say, well, what is the number one piece of advice you give to somebody uh, who wants to avoid being a victim. And they said, simple, keep a low profile. <laughs> well, you're not keeping a low profile with a flashy car and a, yeah. a $5,000 wristwatch, are you? No. Um, <laughs> you're, you're just not, you know, yeah. I used to be a sinner. I used to drive a Mercedes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was so funny. I was like, I hope, I hope you don't go on YouTube and see my newest video that I posted about, <laughs> about, about my car. And of course you did. And we had a good laugh about it early on. I, I have plenty of justification off, off sure. air. That, no, uh, <laughs> look, having a good car is, is good, but you know what? We, we talk about frugality. You know, there is a physician who's profiled in, um, a millionaire next door who says, I only buy two-year-old Mercedes. Yeah. I'm going to let somebody give me the gift of early depreciation. So think about it. Say a Mercedes costs $80,000 and you can buy it for 70,000 if it's two years old. Well, what if you took that $10,000 it invested in the stock market as an example at Today is not a good example of the yeah. stock market, a little bit of an adjustment, but over time, and, and I've seen this in my own portfolio that, um, you know, over the past 10 years, at least according to Vanguard's um, calculations, my portfolio has basically annualized growth of 7.4%. I like it. It's better than inflation. It's not 20%, but it's not 0%. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it, it's good. So, the point is, we talk about the time value of money. And if you could be a good steward, say, I can still drive a luxury car that's slightly used and don't have to worry about this new car smell as being the attractant and take the difference and invest it. You know, there's the old uh, story about Warren Buffett, who says he, he can't afford a haircut. You know, he says, because it's cost $230,000 or something like that. I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, if I get a haircut on a regular basis, the money I could have would have spent on the haircut had I invested it, it would have over my life, it would have been worth so much more. Yeah, it, it's so interesting because I can summarize your whole book based <laughs> on two words, opportunity cost. Yes. Every decision we make has a long-term consequence and a short-term. Yes. It's also true that when you have a nicer car or a nicer house, you tend to want to spend more because it's all, it's like a, it's, you actually had a word in there. It's something about like the consumption treadmill <laughs> where it's like, you're just getting eaten alive. Um, and right, I see right, that, right. Yeah. I see that running rampant with people. You think it's like, oh, you'd be happy if you 
you had that nice car, you wouldn't need to spend that extra money, but no, you're going to the nicer restaurants and you're doing, yeah. it's like, it's, it's all, it's like, it's, it's going backwards and yeah, yeah it's, it, it, yeah, it's opportunity like, cost. It, sure. It's like buying a big house that has a lot of rooms in it. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Now I need yeah. furniture. Now yeah. I need artwork. <laughs> yeah. You know, oh. look, I'm not saying we have to be an ascetic monk. I'm saying that we have to come to grips and asking ourselves how much is enough. Yeah. You know, one of the graphics, and in fact, I, I, if, if I can just, I mean, I'll tell you, yeah, it's on page 24 I, I, uh, of the new book, uh, Richer Than a Millionaire. It has a graph about how much is enough. Mm-hmm. And the way it works is this, and this is based on empirical data. If somebody has $500,000 and you in actuality and you ask them, well, how much do you think you need to feel rich? They say five times as much or 2.5 million. Now, those people who already have two and a half million dollars to feel rich, they think they need twice as much yeah. or $5 million. And if you have 5 million to think to, to feel rich, you need $8 million. Now, the, the, the fortunate part of this particular curve is that it's curvilinear. You know, so, you know, a billionaire, I suspect, probably even has the, to feel rich. I probably only need 900,000 or 900 million, 900 million, right? Look, here's the reality. The median net worth in the United States is about $100,000. And that's including everything, your house, your home equity, as well as your cars and your savings. To be in the top 10% of the distribution and net worth in the United States, you need somewhere around one and a half million dollars in, in all that. See, and that's one of the problems too. Do you count your house? Do you count your business interests? My point is, you know, you, you've seen the studies where most households say they can't even come up with $400 in emergency funds. I mean, if you look at the net worth distribution, there's a lower tail with people with actually a negative net worth. I mean, there's some really hard scrabble people out there. They're, they're really, they just have no concept about saving and having a future orientation. It's day to day. And it's, well, it's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, That's yeah for totally. Sure. And, and just speaking about net worth, you have this famous calculation that you wrote about and the millionaire next door, where it essentially gives someone a metric and you yeah. kind of give people three categories. Can you break that down? Because I I had to reread that because I'm like, okay, I want to make sure I'm doing this right. But I think if you're listening to this, if you're driving, keep driving, mm-hmm. eyes on the road. If you're listening <laughs> to this at home, you might have to re-go back, but I want every single listener to do their calculation to get a metric on you know, are they doing well? Are they average? Yeah. Or are they underperforming? Yeah, yeah. This is a very good typology in the in Millionaire Next Door. And it's especially stable between the ages of 30 and 60. So you're, you're in your career already at 30. And you're thinking about retirement, perhaps at 60, but 30 to 60, it's pretty stable. And we've created two categories, the pause and the Oz, the P-A-W-S, means a prodigious accumulator of wealth. And the UAW is an under accumulator of wealth. And here's how it works. If you tell us what your age is and what your income is, 10% of that value of age times income should be your net worth. And if you're 
four times that average, then you're a prodigious accumulator. If you're one quarter that average, you're an underaccumulator. And so when we look at these extremes, the savers, the prodigious versus the underaccumulators, we can really do a contrast and compare. And in fact, one of the illustrations that, that really highlights it is when we look at Dr. North and Dr. South, they're both physicians making a lot of money, but the fraction, uh, the, the, the net worth of each of them is quite different. We have Dr. South who thinks he's very smart and he is smart, but he spends a lot of time buying cars and selling cars that aren't even depreciated yet because he always wants the next best thing. Dr. North on the other hand says, look, I'm a physician. I just need a car for transportation and I buy good luxury cars, but they're depreciated. And, you know, I'm going to be wearing a white smock over my uh, suits anyway. Why do I need an expensive suit? I mean, it's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? Yeah. And if once you realize, say, well, what do you really need to ply your trade? And in fact, and this I think is, is, is useful, you know, in, in um, Millionaire Next Door in Appendix 3, we have a litany of occupational titles, occupational categories uh, of people who have, um, well, become millionaires or very wealthy in, in their jobs. And you looked at the fact that 80% of them are what you might call blue collar millionaires they'll own things like uh, storage units, billboards that they rent out. Uh, one of my favorites is <laughs> I met this guy who owns a number of parking lots, just flat surfaces, <laughs> but he gets to charge people $20 a day to park their car on his space. So you don't have to worry about evicting anybody you know, you know, you, there's a lot of things you don't have to worry about. You don't have to worry about the plumbing. <laughs> yeah. Look, you're just storing stuff, a car or possessions, whatever. So there's lots of ways of uh, earning a living. Sure, you can be an architect. You can be a physician. You can be an attorney. You can be a university professor. I mean, just look at some of the Stanford University professors who uh, uh, were part of the Google uh, empire. You know, they've uh, done quite well. There's a, a, a math professor at uh, SUNY Stony Brook in New York, uh, you know, who's a, a very bright guy who was capitalizing on his intellectual uh, uh, property. And uh, I, God bless him. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. There's so many ways of, of making the money. And it's all about finding the correct niche that you can really thrive in. That's, yes, that's what it I'm, comes down I'm, to. I'm glad. I'm glad you uh, mentioned that. And it's interesting when I reread because I reread your book, Millionaire Next Door, as well as your newest one. And I was thinking about that Dr. North and Dr. South, and how pretty much Dr. South is spending all of his time and energy saving "quote unquote" money on right. a used car. But the, you're, he's spending. You, I think you said sixty hours, you know, right. or so, right. on that activity, which I would call a liability-based activity, because essentially by that activity, it's taking more money away from you. Versus, yeah. like Doctor North is 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 not is like driving a car, doesn't need a new car every two years, and is spending more time on what I would call asset-based activities. What are what are the things that I can do that can 
you know, bring more money to me, whether it's investing in their pension plan, whether it's in the market, whether it's starting a business. One of the things that I'm really big on is people save for a reason. And I, I think one of the greatest investments you can make is in yourself, like invest in your, you, because you are the number one derivative to make everything possible. And I feel like so many people, and I'm making up a word here, but are devaluing themselves in the way that they think about their time and money. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you know, it, it gets back to, you know, my students who are ships without rudders. Yeah. <laughs> there are some students, um, I mean, I, I took accounting courses, but I was a marketing professor and I never really liked doing accounting. Um, yeah, in fact, you know, I have a CPA who does my accounting. Okay. And, but there are some students I would meet and I asked them, well, why did you choose your particular major? And they would say, well, my mother wanted me to do this or my, you know, or, or, our friend thought it would be a good idea. They really had no idea why they were doing what they were doing, but they were doing it. And I know a number of my friends who have gone to law school have said, boy, I hate law. (laughs) I don't want to practice this. I mean, they go into politics or become a, you know, a manager of something, but they don't want to do the actual law, but they thought it was going to be worth it. It might be good. Look, one of the footnotes, it escapes me at the moment, but it's um, in uh, Richer Than a Millionaire about what kind of education does a student actually need? And it, and it really comes down to the student's personal motivation that is going to determine their success in life. So it could be a trade school for that matter. And nothing wrong with that. We need people who actually know how to do things with their hands and and create, you know, physical ideas or or physical objects, as opposed to just talking about ideas, which are also important, of course. But my point is, not everybody should be going to college. Perhaps they'll be better off going to a trade school that's best going to serve or or be consistent with their... um, it, it goes back to being practical. It's like, yeah, follow your dreams and make sure that your dreams can pay the bills. <laughs> That's and, right. And right. I want you to all know that this is a professor or an ex-professor <laughs> saying this. So yeah, thank you. A um, couple things you talk about in The Millionaire Next Door, you talk about playing off financial offense versus financial defense. It's interesting to me because in your research, you found that millionaires, their spouse was usually even more frugal. And mm-hmm. financial offense is you have to make money and a lot of times, I mean, you were very clear in both books that regardless of what you make, you can still be good. Like you can still be good. It sure helps making money though, making good money. And then no. the defense is really, that's where, that's the unsexy part. That's where no one wants to do the work, but that's where stuff gets done. And, and in your research, frugality was huge, but then the yeah. spouse is frugality. It, it, was even yeah. More. You know, look, uh, you know, packing your own lunch and bringing it to work is uh I don't want to say a virtue, but it makes a lot of sense. I mean, look, you've heard of the book, The uh, the Automatic Millionaire. And one of the big themes is, well, if you just get rid of that $5 a day latte habit, you know, you can hit $25 a week and, you know, you do the math. And there's some truth in that. There, there really is. But what's wrong with just living, you know, well, below your means, and practicing that self-imposed economic scarcity and whatever you make, say, I'm going to live on 80% of this and force myself to save 20% on an annual basis. In fact, 
in the uh, the research for um, richer than a millionaire, it came out to be about 22% on average that the wealthy were saving. Um, right now, the, the savings rate, well, during the pandemic, the savings rate has actually increased somewhat because people are commuting less and, well, just have fewer dry cleaning bills to worry about and don't have to have pressed pants. You can't even tell I'm wearing pants on this uh, interview, can you? <laughs> I am. I am. <laughs> but you get the idea that, you know, your, your lifestyle is, is going to change yeah, based on those circumstances. That's for sure. So yeah, it really does come down to frugality and expectations. And I'll, I'll just be very upfront. The I think the big criticism that I've heard from your first book is scarcity versus abundance. Mm-hmm. And I want you to touch on that because you put as one of your books, Thinking Grow Rich, which has some really iffy, I mean, Napoleon Hill has some very iffy strategies that yeah. he writes about in his other books. Yeah. almost draining a bank account to going in a hotel to, you know, so because he wanted to put himself thinking higher. I, I want you to be on record by saying like, how do you <laughs> talk about scarcity, which I'm very anti thinking scarce, but mm-hmm. I, so I want people to be abundant, but I also want them to be live below their means. And so how the best way I explain it is live below your means. And, and instead of asking, I can't or saying, I can't say, how can I? So still uh-huh. think bigger, but the problem is I see a lot of people that read Napoleon Hill, think and grow rich, and just bankrupt themselves because they just they believe they believe uh-huh. they believe they believe, and they're not they have no stewardship, and things take longer and more money than they think. What's your thoughts on the scarcity versus abundance? And am I the only one to bring this up, or have you gotten? <laughs> yeah, have you gotten no, I, I mean I've certainly read the Napoleon Hill, and one of the things I. I, I think is true in his uh, mastermind groups saying that when you have some older people working with you in your mastermind groups, they're not so distracted about the dating scene and, you know, trying to, um, you know, socialize and, and do things that are going to cost money and you can concentrate on, on building uh, your enterprise. Uh, I, I think there's some truth in that when you age, you know, you, I mean, um, Look, I even remember interviewing one of my millionaires and uh, he has a trophy wife as number two. And he told me one day, man, I wish I had my first wife back. <laughs> I get it. I, I, I get it. You know, you know, there's there's a certain attraction to the trophy and you say, well, you know, what are the values that I really want to embrace? Yeah, maybe similar to that. And related to that, um, there, there's a commercial from an attorney group um, that says marriage is grand, divorce is 20 grand. <laughs> so you, you got to understand what you have and value what you have, as opposed to saying, I always have to have more, bigger, faster, better. Uh, you know, it, it gets you into trouble. And, and that's really gets to the heart of uh, richer than a millionaire Yeah. about when you have, you could be satisfied with less than a million dollars because you have that certain mindset that says, okay, I am, I understand what I have. Right. And and I want to, I want to, I want to press you on this. So uh, how do you think abundantly while still living below your means? Well, abundance, though, could be your generosity that you give in terms of your time 
and your talent (laughs) to others, you know, and and that's really rewarding in itself. Everything does not have to come down to, you know, actual dollar bills. You know, it's the, um, it's part of the satisfied life that being a giver instead of a taker, that's, that's one way of, of summarizing it. Yeah. The, the last last thing I want to mention in the millionaire next door, there's a lot more and I'm hoping to maybe have you on. We can go get sure. technical, but goal setting, talking about the importance of setting goals in your mm. research back, back in the day. And now how important is goal setting as it relates to building wealth? Yeah. Oh, it, it is. I mean, look, um, even as simple as having a budget, I mean, you talk about a ship without a rudder. <laughs> if you don't have a budget, or at least even a mental budget. And it doesn't have to be an elaborate sped- spreadsheet. It can be on one piece of paper. You just write down, what is it I can afford? You know, how much entertainment can I pay for? And once you realize, again, that, that latte factor, it's like, wait, why am I drinking this overpriced beverage? And, you know, it, it just makes you realize, you know, it's like counting calories too. Say, so, man, I didn't realize I ate all that. <laughs> Yeah. You know, so yeah, yeah. So, so having a goal and having a plan and saying, okay, these are the benchmarks that I want to meet. Um, well, look, yeah. in, in military strategy, and I, and I know this is, they teach us at West Point, and when you talk about waging war, number one, the, the, the first point they make is the principle of the objective, if you don't know why you're engaging in that war and why you are spending these resources and allowing people to die and get maimed, uh, you shouldn't be even engaged in that activity. And I think uh, sometimes, you know, (laughs) we get involved in certain wars that I think have no particular objective that at least that I understand. And uh, it's tragic. Absolutely tragic. You know, um, I had the opportunity a number of years ago to give a speech at Walter Reed Medical Center. And I said, well, wait a minute. You know, I talk about money, right? Yeah, we want you to talk about money. We have a group of recovering soldiers and sailors at our medical center who are going to get a lump sum for their disability and plus some sort of stipend on a monthly basis, perhaps even for the rest of their life, convince them not to go buy a Cadillac Escalade. Tell them maybe they ought to put a down payment on a house and have something of value that can appreciate and uh, appreciate over time instead of depreciate like a, like a car, okay? And that was the message. And um, I... Well, I, I was honored to do it, and it's, um, boy, I get it. You get this lump sum of money, and you feel that you have these disabilities, which in reality you do, and say, well, what the heck? I'm going to now splurge, yeah, yeah. and I'm going to go do something probably not in my best interest in the long run. So I hope I got through to some of them anyway. Yeah, you, you talk about budgeting and you actually, you, uh, one of the common things that you wrote about in Millionaire Next Door is you say a lot of people when you, people that budget don't necessarily need a budget and you, you, you go back to the story of like a lot of people that jog don't necessarily need to jog, but it's that consistency. And there is something to say that if you track your money, you'll, you'll control it. And yeah. 
Oh, absolutely. It, it's about forming habits that are, uh, that become part of your life. Yep. You know, it's, you know, you are what you eat. You are what you think you are, <laughs> you know, depends on where you are with your life. Right. Yep. So again, if you are listening to this or watching this on YouTube and have not read Millionaire Next Door, go get it. But now what we're going to do is we're going to transition to your newer book. And I would, I just would highly recommend getting Richer Than a Millionaire. You can go to richerthanamillionaire.com to get yourself uh-huh. a copy. And I have to say, when you opened up, I, I read early on with the first, you came out swinging, but also you mentioned what you call the gob factor. Uh-huh. And you also mentioned the importance of a purpose. And when I read that, I go, oh, <laughs> I wonder if that's the reason why this is not a bestseller. And I'm just being frank. As yeah. I believe, I, I love what you wrote. And it's so yeah. important. But I can see people reading that and get turned off. So yeah. why is a yeah. purpose so important? Regardless if you're a Christian or not, why is having oh. a purpose so important? Yeah, it's, it's so easy just to drift along in life. You know, you <laughs> I get up typically at 5 a.m. every day and I'm not, you know, working on a full-time basis anymore. I just do, you know, and because there's a lot to be accomplished, you know, every day is a gift, right? And so having the discipline to, well, rise early, be productive. I mean, look, even writing books, um, one of my favorite uh guides is uh, Stephen King wrote the book called On Writing. And he, he talks about his, um, it, it's nonfiction, and he talks about how he goes about the procedure of writing a book. You know, he's obviously very prolific. And he says a number of things. He goes, one, without a stable marriage, he couldn't have done as much as he's done. Two, every day, no matter how he feels, he sits down at his desk whether it be for four hours or six hours, but he just sits there every day. It's his job. And I, I like one of the things he says, look, if you're an author and you're not sitting down and doing your work, I mean, what are you doing? Knitting Afghans? <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, the, the point is being directed, having that purpose of, well, do you want to be an author? You know, do you want to be a professor? You know, what is it I have to do? What do I have to publish to be a professor? I, when I don't have even a reason like that I'm working towards in a day, it's harder to wake up that day than when I'm excited about, you know, getting up. Um, and, and when I have that, and that's a micro example, you don't have something bigger than yourself. Why, why even, why even spend the time budgeting, controlling your money, being saving, investing, but if you do, it's, you're doing that for a reason. Yeah. When I was in graduate school at RPI, uh, my dissertation advisor, Jim McLaughlin, um, great guy, uh, a number of things. One, uh, his research in the Journal of Advertising Research, for one, he looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he said there are 12 psychological constructs in this one paragraph. And he says, you know, this is truly an inspired piece of work that it's hard for any advertising person to come up with two or three basic selling points, but all 12 constructs were in the good parable of the good Samaritan. And he goes on to say, you know, this is truly inspired work from God. Now um, I didn't really know what his um, position on religion was or God or, or, or anything. 
And I was just a young, impressionable graduate student. <laughs> but he said, said, you know, he got a Harvard MBA and his PhD at Berkeley. And he said, he found God at Berkeley. I said, no, you know, and he, we talked about it in his office. And he goes, you know, it was a real revelation. And then when he told me he came back um, from a Harvard reunion, Harvard MBA reunion, uh, his comment to me was, now I know why pride is a deadly sin. You know, we become so full of ourselves, seeing we're the masters of the universe, you know, we control everything and you control nothing, you know, by the grace of God, we all exist. Now, some people will say, oh boy, well, I don't believe in God. Well, I mean, I can't tell you what to believe, but without that purpose of saying, well, what am I, just some sort of random event, just drifting along? What is expected of me? And when we look at, well, what is expected of us? I mean, let's look at the, some of the great religions. I mean, in Judaism, in Isaiah 58, it's uh, a passage of uh, give your coat to the naked, feed the hungry. In uh, Christianity, you look at Matthew 25. Uh, in fact, this is the passage that was the driving force for Mother Teresa. It's that which you've done to the least of these, you've done unto me. And in Islam, one of the five pillars of Islam is almsgiving, being charitable. Okay, so I can't think of any legitimate religion that yep. would say, don't be charitable. Yep. And maybe there's something to this. Yep. And in fact, that's what we found in Richer Than a Millionaire those who are charitable with their time and money tend to be happier people. And again, just as we did, you know, with, with, with some good constructs in, in the millionaire next door, one of the constructs we have in uh, richer than a millionaire is a scale called subjective well-being, or a happiness scale. It's five statements you respond to on a seven point scale so you can score a low of a five or a high of a 35. And if you score higher than 20, you're considered adjusted. You understand your place in the universe. You understand your mission. And if you score below 20, you tend to be a disgruntled person. Now, the good news is in our survey research, the majority of millionaires and near millionaires are pretty satisfied with life. They yeah. do have that generosity. Yep. But we show, you know, through our uh, statistics uh, in Richer Than a Millionaire, that folks um, tend to be, who score higher on the uh, scale of uh, happiness or subjective well being, also tend to give more of their time and money uh, to charity. Yeah. Now, is it because there were, told by their religion to do it i don't know but i do know this again what religion would make you miserable exactly. i mean you know it, it so yeah well what's the purpose of life i, I think there's something yeah, to say about to and i said this earlier as well to you no. when we when i would go overseas and serve i was going to quote unquote serve but i was the one that was actually being served by doing uh -huh. that yeah, you, you are, you know, it, it, it is, it gives you those endorphins too, yeah. <laughs> to, to I, actually be a giver. I, you talk about happiness and actually on chapter five, you, 
I, I listed out actually for this interview, the six questions that you go, you go in. And so what I want to do is for, for the, if you're listening to this or watching this on YouTube, I want you to just reflect, get the book, obviously do this exercise. But the purpose of this exercise is just to really create a metric of like, where are you? Cause you talk about dissatisfied versus satisfied. And, and the reality is this, it's, it's so funny that we're, we're talking better wealth for me is mm-hmm. living intentionally. Mm-hmm. I don't care how much money you have. If you're not living intentionally, I, it's, it's a bummer life. We have one life. Yeah. And so I did this and I did this and I scored very high by the way on this mm-hmm. because I I'm trying to live my life to be satisfied. If there's something wrong here, I want to change it. I don't want to just be like, Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah. So, so here are the six questions. Number one is like, I disagree. And number seven is I will wholeheartedly agree. Yes. Okay. Right. So the first one, in most ways, my life is close to my ideal. Number one, disagree with that. Number seven, agree on that. Number two, the, the question number two, the conditions of my life are excellent. Mm-hmm. Number three, I'm satisfied with my life. That's a deep question. Number four, so far, I've gotten the important things I want in life. Now, this one for me was low because I, I'm, I have mm-hmm. a big vision, but so that... Mm-hmm. Number five, if you could live, if I could live my life over, I would change almost nothing. Deep question. Mm-hmm. Talked to a guy the other day who listens to our show and he got very emotional saying that he feels like he floated. And, and now for the first time, he's looking back and saying, I want to change some of it. Like, I don't, I wish I would have known this when I was your age. And then number six, which this is the one that you um, got added after the fact is your future question. And it's all about the an- feeling anxious. It's quite often I feel anxious when I think about the future. And it was really interesting. I want you to talk a little bit about this. You added this and then you added a whole nother metric of there's, there's four type of people. And yeah. based on what they decided on, like how you see the future, you could yeah. maybe be low, but you know, you could be, you, you could be, yeah. I forget the word that you use. Is it patient, patiently, well, right. The patience of Job is is, is yeah. one of them. About yeah, um, you know, on a pretest to the questionnaire, I asked one of my priest friends um, to to look at it, and he says, you know, you really, Bill, you really have to add this question about being anxious about the future. He says, you know, during confession, I sense that. that a, a number of, you know, the, the people who are confessing, they're, they're really anxious. Um, it, it's, they're rather questioning their faith as, as part of it, I suppose, but they're, they're, they're just not really sure where they're going. And, yeah. and, and I get it. I mean, look, we, we do live in some anxious times. I mean, I mean, the, the, this pandemic and, uh, you know, I'm semi-retired and it, it it's not really affecting me all that much personally. I mean, I, yeah, I know a couple of people who have died from COVID and, it, and it's very unfortunate and sad. And, and, uh, and one of them was very, very healthy, you know, in the prime of his life, but uh, he got it. But my point is this, um, you know, having this purpose and, and, and doing what you're doing, you know, I, I can't help but think, you know, towards the end of the book um, in, in Richer Than a Millionaire, you know, I have this uh, quote from uh, Viktor Frankl, an Auschwitz survivor. He was a psychiatrist. He only died like 20 years ago. But, but here's part of his quote. He says, don't aim at success, 
the more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you are going to miss it. For success, like happiness, cannot be pursued, it must ensue. And it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself. You know, pretty desperate situation in Auschwitz. <laughs> but his advice, I think, is so spot on about we have to help each other. It's not about my personal success. I am going to get this happiness or satisfaction by helping others and reaching out and being part of the solution, yeah. you know, which again is diametrically opposed to saying, I need the bigger, faster, better, everything, right? If someone were to take that quiz and it, they got a score of less than 19, meaning yeah. they're not, they're, they're very dissatisfied. What, what's the one piece of advice that you can give yeah. them without knowing their situation? What's the yeah. one? Thing? You have to start doing some soul searching. You okay, really do. Yeah. Um, saying, what is it I'm missing in my life? You know, and, and this is why, again, right in the intro of Richard, uh, that God factor from, you know, I was in my 20s in graduate school and Professor McLaughlin starts telling me about God in a secular institution of RPI. And uh, it was not incompatible with my thoughts, but I never expected to hear this from one of my professors. But uh, looking at his research and his commitment, um, I, I, I really knew he was onto something. He really was. And, and I'm convinced I'm onto something too, as well as my colleague, Rich Van Ness. We, I, we think we really have something in terms of the legacy we want to leave our children and grandchildren saying, you know, it's, it's not about the things it's about being, you know, remember um, Earl Nightingale's um, parable called the greatest secret. Are you familiar with that? And from the 1950s, he uses the metaphor of the man in the wood burning stove. He says to the, the man says to the stove, give me heat then I will give you wood. He says, look, it doesn't work that way, people. You have to build the fire, yeah. bring your own wood, light it, tend it, yeah. then you will get the heat. Yeah. That is so true. You must be the giver before you can be the receiver. When, when people work with us, we don't move forward if there's not clarity. And it goes mm -hmm. back to if you're if you're dissatisfied, there's no quick hack. There's no quick book that you can quickly read. Yeah. There, needs to, there needs to be some construction that you need to do. And I'm telling you, it's the most important thing that you can do. A big, uh, I'm a big fan of The One Thing by Gary Keller. Mm -hmm. And it just take a step back. That is the one thing that you need to do such by doing everything else will, will, will fall into place. And so... Thank you, thank you for writing that in this book. I think I, when I when I picked it up, I didn't was not expecting because Millionaire Next Door, you didn't touch a ton on this. Right. I was not expecting the the God factor, the purpose driven, the satisfied first. I was thinking it was just going to be all numbers, and you have good research in here. But you, I I feel like the paradigm in which you're writing is different, and 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 yet it's it's very much powerful. It, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, you know I, I talked about the great religions. Um, yep. 
you know, but Benjamin Franklin in his essay, The Way to Wealth, you know, he talks about the idea of, you know, frugality and prudence in an industry. And in fact, um, he also has the principle, he says, it's industry, prudence, frugality, they're all wonderful virtues, but it's all blasted without a blessing from heaven. <laughs> and therefore, as that blessing humbly, yeah. you know, I remember doing an interview and somebody wanted to keep using that term self-made man. I said, no, don't do that. Nobody is self-made. You know, you are uh, your, your own gift. I mean, look, you don't have to be super religious to understand that, you know, you're not just some sort of random event. You are, well, <laughs> you have a soul, you have yeah. a mind, you have a being. And, you know, so when, when we look at the, the satisfied near millionaire or the satisfied millionaire, they tend to, again, they tend to be generous with their time and talent. They, they tend to follow the golden rule of, you know, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. They tend to be God-centered people. Um, it's, just a, it's just a fact of life that's yeah. based on the empirical evidence. You see, yeah. one of my attorney friends said, you know, Bill, you know what I like about the research that you do is that it's not just your opinion. It's yeah. based on empirical work and other references. And of course, that's the whole academic approach. You, know, you, you, know, you go where the data uh, brings you. And that's... Yeah. Um, and I'm willing to go there. And I'm glad it's, uh, you know, some would say, well, gee, that's just a case of confirmation bias that, you know, but, you know, truth is truth, you know, yeah. and, and if it happens to be what I believe and what I've yeah. experienced in my life, you know, with my brother and my children and my grandchildren and my marriage, um, so be it. Yeah. It's uh, about the Viktor Frankl approach. Right. Yes, yes. And Victor, Victor Frankel, incredible story. And that's yeah. a whole that's could be a whole nother episode. You gave me a podcast idea. So thank you. For that. <laughs> right. um, you you said in early on in your book, you said through our research informed by Benjamin Franklin and others, we have identified the key factors that are required uh, for wealth, um, wealth formulation. And mm -hmm. there's 10. And if I quickly go through the, the first ones have a passion. Second one is persevere. Third one is practice good stewardship. And you actually talk about taxes, which I, I was like, I love that you, I love that you snuck that in as a good steward is paying legally as little taxes as possible. I love that you That's said right. that. Um, number four is be frugal. And then you say frugality requires us to live below our means. It's sad that you have to say that, but it's very, it's uh, you have to spell that out. Mm -hmm. And then number five, it's avoid excessive debt. And then it's interesting you, in, in that section, you said that the debt to equity ratio of the average millionaire is less than 8%. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which I want to come back to because I think sometimes I get misquoted and for being someone that loves debt. And that's, I personally have very, like very low debt across the board. So, but I want to just but, go back. But some to people are, are very highly leveraged. Most and, people are. Yeah. And, and, and you look at how's that working right now with the, the rental market. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yep. it's uh, being a landlord with uh, five percent down, and depending on all the rents to pay for your mortgage, yep. where there's a moratorium on evictions. Yep. Commercial and look, I don't want to see anybody evicted, but my, it, it, what a disaster we have in the commercial real estate business right now, yep. 
uh, with the shopping centers, the malls. Yeah. They're whew. yeah, and it, it's 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 interesting because a lot of people that I have on the show point to the use of leverage as a way to build wealth. Yeah, when everything goes right, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's right. As I when I yeah. Everything was good until it wasn't. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, 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 I'm not disagreeing. I just, it's, yeah. it's one of the things well, that I you definitely. Know, again, you know, in, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 22, verse seven, I don't know all the Proverbs, trust me, yeah. but there's one particular one. The borrower is a slave to the lender. Yeah. And, you know, when you're in debt to somebody, well, you're yeah. in bondage, you're, in, you're a slave. So can I, can I verbal process something with you? So sure. you you're in your research you you talk about a more, if someone has a more a high mortgage it's one of the worst things that they can do, mm-hmm. and I read that and I and I and I look at Dave Ramsey's stuff and a lot of his advice I go okay, that's because people are buying things that they shouldn't afford, like mm-hmm. that's the big problem with debt is it literally it's you have this in your writing it's an enabler it enables yeah. you to buy things that you can't afford. It, it enables you to buy a car that you shouldn't have. And it enables you to be in a house that you shouldn't be in. Or, Here's my pushback though. So yeah. I think when I talk about, and you, I don't know if you watch my video on like cars or whatever is whenever you buy something, there's really two decisions you need to make. Now this is, I will be the first to say, this is so hard when you're go, when it comes down to making a decision, but there's two decisions. It's, are you going to purchase it? And then once you decide, then there's the how I personally feel that the mortgage is one of the most amazing tools to build wealth mm-hmm. as far as as far as locking in your payment as far as like i think it's almost more risky to pay off your mortgage quickly because if something happens mm-hmm. to you but i think that the mortgage enables people to buy houses that they shouldn't be in so as a result i can't disagree with you but that was kind of when i was reading i was struggling because i was like man yeah. and and that's kind of the conclusion i came to but okay, so look, everybody has to live someplace, but does everybody need a college education that costs $80,000 a year? Okay. <laughs> and so we have students, look, right after mortgage, I think student debt is the, the second largest uh, nut that has to be cracked by an individual. So um, boy, and the shakeout we're having now with the COVID yeah. where students and parents are asking, wait a minute, why am I paying full tuition when my student is in the basement with a laptop <laughs> listening yeah. to some professor drone on about something? <laughs> Those are expensive Zoom meetings, if you're asking. They, they certainly are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I've always felt, though, I, I, first of all, look, you know what? Who has the best job in the whole wide world? Pat Sajak. <laughs> Pat Sajak, he's been doing it for what, 38 years on Wheel of Fortune? Who has the second best job in the whole world? A tenured professor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Because, you know, you're not dealing with life and death situations. Well, unless you're a medical school professor. But, you know, if you're in a school of business, you know, you just do your research, you know, yeah. you talk to students and go to cocktail parties and yeah. chit chat. And, and there's this thing and, called a pension that, uh, and, the, and the, the pension. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? It's great, but what a stupid system that is. Oh man. I I'm telling you, this is, I, most of my interviews don't go this long, but people will listen because you have such, I mean, there's so much that we're talking about, but we could talk about 
pensions. We could talk about all that. Yeah. Good. I mean, knock on wood. Uh, New York is not necessarily the greatest state as far hmm. as uh, their financials. Um, I want to go on and and say number six in this you, you know this research mm-hmm. informed by um, others and Benjamin Franklin is be humble. You're yes. one of the few people to talk about that, and I think that's so important. Number seven, be charitable. Tony mm-hmm. Robbins actually talks a lot about this in his book, and mm-hmm. it's I think it's just really it's 100% agree with that. Have a good marriage. That my friends, again, thank <laughs> yeah. you. I'm not I'm not married yet, but one mm-hmm. of the one of the best advice that I've been given by multiple people that I highly respect is they say, Caleb, be very very careful in this area because mm-hmm. this one decision will make or break your business. Yeah, it will. <laughs> Have good health. Um, yeah. A whole nother story. My my dad is very much a a researcher, also an author. And I grew up in a, in a household that valued health and I have carried that on. And you, you talk about later in the book, you talk about how your health, we don't have, we don't own our health. We are caretakers of it. Yeah. You know, it, you know, and this really gets back to even the stewardship issue on having good health. I mean, look, we have an obesity epidemic. We have yep. a drug problem, you know, smoking, you know, these are things we bring on ourselves in large part, although some people say, well, no, it's a disease and we can't help it. I'm a victim. Well, look, if it shortens your life, it shortens the opportunity to have compound interest. You know, I go back to uh, uh, the Nobel prize winner, uh, um, Franco Medigliani, who said, uh, I think it was 1985 when he got his Nobel prize for the life cycle of money. He says, when you're young, you work for money. And when you're old, money works for you. Well, the whole idea is, okay, yeah, have a job, have passive and, and, and active income, you know, have some rental units, but also be an architect and, or be a professor, you know, have a day job as well as passive income on the side, you know, from investments. And then with the compounding, one day you will be able to live off what you built and what you've grown. It's about stewardship, isn't it? And part of that then is having good health in order to enjoy what you've built. Yeah. I, you know, having the the long life to have the compounding. Yeah. And I, I often say, and by the way, anytime I say I I've learned this or stolen this from somebody, but it's stewardship is a, is a combination of how you use your time, your money and your, your abilities. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's like a sick, a sick man has one wish and it's like, it, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of power in that. There's, there's a lot more. <laughs> I think we'll have to have you on again. Well, I want to just remind everyone listening to this richer than a millionaire.com. Please go get a copy. Yeah. Get, get, yeah. get some yeah. for your children. <laughs> if you're, if you're listening to this and you, and you have grandchildren, yeah. one of the best no. things that you can get them. Absolutely. And what it's birthday presents, Christmas presents, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs. I don't, by the way, I don't think you're going to win any uh, parent award getting, getting this as a Christmas gift, but they'll, yeah. you're, 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 you'll, you'll win an award 20 years from now. I promise. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you know, um, I, I got to share this with you. Um, going back to um, um, millionaire next door, uh, what the chapter on economic outpatient care, 
about what does it mean to have a subsidized adult child living with you who just um, doesn't have the wings to fly away and, and pursue something that's valuable. Well, here's the issue. And Warren Buffett, I think, said it best. Give your children enough so that they can do anything, but not so much they can do nothing. All right. So the lap of luxury, you think you're, you're doing them a favor, but you're really, well, stifling their growth. Yeah. See, here, here's, the, here's the bottom line. And, and I go back to um, uh, Benjamin Franklin from that 1758 essay. And maybe this is a good way to conclude this segment. He says, towards the end of his essay, the townspeople heard the message, agreed with it, and then practiced the contrary. <laughs> it is hard to change. But if you're going to become wealthy, and wealthy in the truest sense, not only financially wealthy, but also spiritually wealthy, and, and the things we talked about, you have to have that change of heart. It has to be internalized. You have to have goals that, that are worthy of you. And you also have to have that guidance of saying, I am going to be a giver. I'm going to stoke those flames and then I will get the heat. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. It, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Let's, let's keep in touch. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.